Thank you for keeping the flies fly. Vibes Lives has something very special for you right after church. Gospel brunch and sunshine. I am Robin Lynn, and join me for Jazz with Jay every Sunday and a glass of wine <laughs> on VibesLive.com. 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hello, I'm Robin Lynn Maven, the CEO, creator, and producer of Vibes Live. We have over 2 million geographical listeners reaching 200 countries with nonstop music 24-7. Just tune in on VibesLive.com. <laughs> I say the hip hop, you just don't stop it and just get ready to jam with Disco Daddy Wide World of Hip Hop Radio Show every Saturday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time only on VibeLive.com with special guests every week. Don't miss it. <laughs> Hello out there, Disco Daddy here. Welcome to another edition of Disco Daddy's Wide World of Hip Hop. If you've been following us, and I know you have, you find that Disco Daddy's been taking you down the yellow brick road of hip hop. And doing our research, uh, we found that a lot of people out there who love hip hop really do not know the history. They don't know how hip hop started the progression of hip-hop from the B-boys, the B-girls, to the, the DJs, and then the MCs adding on beatbox and graffiti being added on later. There is a history of hip-hop. Not only is there a history of hip-hop from the time it started being called hip-hop, which is a term created by uh, Keith Cowboy Wiggins uh, in New York City, but there's a history of hip-hop before recorded records. There's a history that goes back to the time the foundation for what we now know as hip-hop was being laid. These are first-generation pioneers, and the man that's a guest on my show today is a true first-generation pioneer. East Coast or West Coast, it does not matter. First generation is a period uh, starting around 1970 leading up to 1983. Anybody who was doing anything hip-hop related, even before the term hip-hop was coined, is a first-generation hip-hop legend. This is Grandmaster Alonzo. Alonzo Williams. What's up, Now, many people know you from the world-class wrecking crew, but you have a history that predates that. I'm familiar with it. My audience is not. So today, my brother, we're going to turn the mic over to you it is your story, your role in hip-hop, how you ended up in it, and uh, how you started out where you were born and raised. And uh, I'm going to sit back and we're going to listen to Grandmaster Lonzo on Disco Daddy's Wide World of Hip-Hop. Hey, Disco Daddy, thank you for having me on the show today. I really appreciate it. I thank everybody for taking time out to listen to this show. Um, you know, my history in West Coast hip-hop or in hip-hop, Started back in 1973, 72. Actually, I got my first glimpse of it, and back in the late 60s, when I was in junior high school, I went to a um, to a what they call a sock hop back in the day, and the <laughs> DJ was from a radio station. He was uh, uh um, he was we were at Captain of the Park in Compton. And he had the crowd rocking. He had the crowd just rocking. And he was playing Ohio Players Pain, okay. And he played. He was playing the uh, the long version. And if you if you, if you know you have to go back and dig, this one of the records only Disco Daddy right now can appreciate. And it was one of the first long versions I ever heard. And it was, and back then, when you had a party going, people 
would be dancing in syncopation. Everybody would be doing the same thing. We had this little groove, and the whole room we grooving together. And if you ever watch Soul Train, you'll see that same group syncopation on Soul Train where everybody is going down at the same time, or everybody's rocking to the same way at the same time, and it's just yeah. such a smooth groove. And I saw him create that vibe. I wanted to learn how to do that. Mm. And at that time... That was your first basic introduction and sort of impression where you the light bulb came on that this is what Grandmaster Lanza wanted to do. Right. So I wanted to become a DJ. I wanted to be a street DJ. But uh, at that time, the only DJs that were around were DJs for radio stations. So I thought you had to be a radio DJ first to become a street DJ. So not knowing that one day I'd have an opportunity to become a radio DJ. I, uh, when I got to high school, I still had to drive. I still went to all my school sock hops, and the DJs were whack. They never, did, they never did do what Homeboy did. I didn't see much of that again. And then when I got around the 12th grade, they had a um, – right before I graduated, they passed around this, uh, this book, and it was uh, career opportunities, and they asked you, what do you want to do? And it allowed me to check off radio. I checked off radio and something else. And uh, about two weeks later, I got a call from a uh, broadcast school, the Los Angeles, no, Don Tracy School of Broadcasting in Los Angeles. Wow, I remember. And wow. they, gave, they gave me a scholarship, and it was a six-month course, and they guaranteed if you pass this class, you get a, a third-class uh, broadcast license. They were and, a premier school at that time here in L.A. Oh, man, yeah. They were right there in Crenshaw, uh, where the mall is, right across the from the mall. Where Ka- now it's right. Kaiser sits there now, but, you know, okay. it's a, wow. it's, we, we're talking about 76, uh, 1976. Yeah. I'm fresh out of high school. Um, you huh? You took me way back with that, Don Tracy. I'm, I'm, fresh out, I'm fresh out of high school, and the disco oh. era is cracking and I'm right. playing uh, Fly Robin Fly. I'm playing Donna Summer. I'm playing. Uh, That's why I got my te- my de- my DJ teeth cut on. Okay, and yeah. uh, got out of high school. Got out of broadcast school, and uh, didn't have there, there were no real black discos. And some of my buddies started giving dances at that mm-hmm. time uh, because there were no black discos. Right. And I eventually worked my way hustled my way into becoming a, a, a disco DJ, okay? And I started in the park because I, I wouldn't – I didn't have all the experience unnecessary, so I would go out to the park and just sit up in the what park year, and play. What year were we talking about right there? What year were we, we talking, talking about? about? about We're talking about 76, 77 now, okay? okay. I would go out in the park, and uh, because I'm mechanically inclined, I knew how to find electricity at the park. And basically, <laughs> while, you know, most of the time, if you go to, if you go to a public restroom, there is right. no outlets. But if you look That's on the floor, on the ground, you see a flat plate. Huh? You're the first one from the West Coast I heard say that. That's a New York move. You know, that's how they power right. their park jams back there. Right. You're the first it, West Coast person to drop right. some knowledge that we were doing it out here on the West Coast, too. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's a flat plate on the ground. If you pull that plate off, there's two wires. All you gotta know is which, figure out which one is the negative and the positive, and most of the time it don't really make a make a difference. Plug them to right. a uh, to your extension cord, and you got power. Okay, well I do that. My, my old man was kind of guy that taught me all kind of stuff, so I'd go out to the park, steal electricity, and I'd play all day long for free, <laughs> just just to uh, get the exposure. Mel- records melting in the sun, the records get warping and shit. Oh, it was what crazy, part? dude. I, huh? What parks did you do that at? Did I did you it at uh, Peg Park in uh, right near Palos Verdes. I played Sentinella wow. Park. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Sentinella, Peg Park. Um, wherever, I, wherever I can plug up at, man. If there was a dance or something like that, I always do the pre-party. The pre-party was how you promoted the dance, okay? Because you got everybody out of the park for free. You pass out your flyers. Everybody got your attention. You got everybody's attention. So you pass out your flyers to your dancers. And if you know, they, oh, I'm gonna be there. I'm gonna be there. And usually, they let me open up at that time. And um, mm-hmm. then uh, in doing you, that, man, yourself I, I into it. Not only were you giving dances, but you were also starting to promote 
printing flyers and doing you you went head over heels into this. You didn't just hire yourself out to DJ. You know what? I never I never stopped. Once I once I mm-hmm. saw it, it was so new. Right. You never knew when to stop. You know, you, you, you when you became a DJ, you wanted to become a promoter. And if you once you became a promoter, you want to start doing concerts. You know, then I got a nightclub. So, you know, as you know, opportunities kept opening up, man. You know, mm-hmm. I was uh, doing my thing. I was DJing on a regular basis. I was one of the few cats that had access to a sound system on a regular basis on my side of town. So I stayed busy. Okay. I stayed busy. I had a job working for a record distributor. But, shoot, I got paid in records. I didn't even get paid in money. I got paid in records. And they couldn't figure out how I was eating, coming to work clean every day, driving an almost new van, and not getting no money. You know, I would make four five. in the early days before you became famous. I, I was Disco Lonzo, baby. Disco Lonzo, look out. Disco, La- disco Lonzo, giving, dealing you a double dose of Disco Dynamite, sticking it in your eardrum and blowing your mind. And that was that was my line, okay, you know. And uh, later on, me and my boy uh, Roger Clayton, we uh, hooked up and we started doing dances at the Alpine Village over in in uh, Torrance. And um, later on, after after a few okay. dances with let's, him, let's, let's let's pause right there. You and Roger Clayton, for my audience who don't know who he is, he's right. the founder of Uncle Jam's Army, premier party uh, promoters from a later period, but he did start earlier. So you were one of the first people, actually, to work with Roger before Uncle Jam's Army. Me and Roger worked at the same place, uh, Record Shack, in uh, in Compton. We both sold records over the phone. And um, when he had the idea to, to even go to Alpine, I'm sitting right there with him. Okay, we're sitting there talking. What line did this happen? This right. happened like 77. 77. Okay. He was 77. still Unique Dreams Entertainment then? He was still Unique had, Dreams he, he was He was still Unique Dreams Entertainment. He was, uh, he was uh, the, uh, what did he call himself? He called himself uh, the Prince of Dreams. Prince of Dreams. Okay. Now that's preceded Uncle Jam's Army. Right. Preceded Uncle Jam's Army. Okay. And this preceded World Class also. Well, it was uh, actually and truthfully, yes, because we got named the Wrecking Crew at mm-hmm. Alpine Village. I was my company was Disco Construction at that time. Okay. I was Disco that's, Struct that's, Disc, Disco Construction, Half Sounds Will Travel. That was my mobile DJ company. My card, I still got a business card. Say the same thing: Disco Construction, Half Sounds Will Travel. That was after named after a gunslinger. Uh, so TV you sit in the record shop. And how did that that thing, the light, come on with you and Roger to do the Alpine Village? He said, "Man, we ought to do some dances." Cause I had the sound system, I had a truck, I'm DJing all the time. We ought to get together and do some dances. What you got in mind, man? Shoot, man, let's, let's do let's do Alpine. All right, let's give it a try. Okay. So he uh, he went to Alpine and cut the deal, and uh, I started off as just being a straight DJ for him, and then later on. I started doing Alpine myself. Right. And uh, I had a partner that uh, his, Roger's partner turned me on to, a female partner. She and I started doing Alpine together. And uh, shortly after I started doing the Alpine, uh, my dad came in the house one day, saw me counting up some money, about six, $700. <laughs> Where you get that money from? You know, I got more money in my bedroom than he made all month. Uh, he just, uh, he uh. just knew I was selling dope. He was all oh, hell no. You selling dope? Up in the, you, you finna die today, okay? And I'm like, dude, no, calm down, calm down. And uh, he uh, he uh, came to Alpine Village, saw what I was doing, and shortly after that, I got fired from Record Shack. They uh, they uh, they, uh, they laid me off, and then uh, and I told him what I was doing. He took me over to his partner. You still there? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I heard, I heard it click. Um, he took me to his partner that owned this club on Avalon, Jeffy's, uh-huh. and he had just built the second floor, and it was called the Eve After Dark. And I cut he cut my dad helped me to cut my first my deal for Eve After Dark back in 1979, and we opened up on June 26th, June 22nd, 1979, and wow. uh, that's where 
I uh, that's where a lot of my shit jumped off at, and that was my introduction to um, hip hop from my perspective. Because now I'm bringing in. Shortly after that, I start brought in Curtis Blow and Run DMC and stuff like that. Hold and on, we're gonna get. Want you to paint a picture when you and Rock during that period. There was no rapping going on during that period. You guys were the DJ was the premier thing that brought in the crowd. Am I correct during this period? Of right. Well, the, well, the 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 line I just gave you, the Disco Lonzo dealing you a double dose of Disco Dynamite sticking in your eardrum and blowing your mind. That was right. that was considered a rap. Okay. Of course. Of course. That was considered a rap. We didn't have no sixteen bar, no thirty two bar lines. We had right. as, as a DJ back in the day, you had to MC your own show. So you had to have your own sayings. You had to have you had to have uh, you had to have your own stuff. You just couldn't, you know, wasn't no two DJ, wasn't wasn't no MC and a DJ. You was all that. There you go. There you go. Okay. You was the MC, the DJ, the road man, the uh, uh, light man. I did my own special effects. I, you know, I was busy the busy as a doggone octopus. Uh, when I did not did not DJ the party. What no what no two man shows. It was a one man show. Gotcha. Now. Grandmaster Alonzo, you've got the Eve After Dark just popping up. And 79, another seminal thing happens which influenced everybody in hip-hop. And I want to see if it had any influence on you. Rapper's Delight comes out. Rapper's Delight. was a hell of a year. So you can continue. Rapper's Delight was jumping off right when we opened the Eve After Dark. It came out right, I think Rapper's Delight came out like September. We had just opened the Eve up. We just opened the Eve up. I think Rapper's Delight came out September of 79. And um, I tell people this all the time, at this point in time, we are literally, uh, we're exiting disco, Mm -hmm. getting heavy into funk, okay, because we got the part of the funkadelic, and rap is being introduced. Mm -hmm. All this is going on at the same time, okay? Now, you know, you got Rick James is hot. You got Prince is just coming out. Michael Jackson is is, is, joined, is uh, doing his thing, uh, just leaving the Jackson 5. Uh, so, and then, then Curtis, Curtis Blow had just dropped Christmas rapping. Before, before uh, Rappers of Light came out, there was Christmas rapping. I think it came out like 78, 77, 78. So we had heard the rap situation, but we hadn't heard anything. It hadn't, we hadn't got bombarded yet. Okay, we right. just being introduced. Okay, and everybody thought it was going to be a, fa- a, a flash in the pan, and uh, you know, nobody was really checking for it. Right, right, catches everybody off guard. Everybody, but Disco Lonzo, you you you're a DJ. <laughs> this I'm, record comes I'm, out. You got a nightclub, and you're already DJing. Thing, what right. happened? Uh, it started. It's, the club business. Has always been uh, kind of an up and down situation, and uh, we started doing. We saw rap coming to L.A., and one night for a while the club slowed down, so I hired a band coming to the club, and we wrote uh, we wrote some raps. The DJs wrote some raps. Now the DJs that wrote these raps never got famous because my initial DJ crew did not consist of Dr. Dre. Dre came in afterwards. We had, uh, I had three other guys, four other guys that w- rolled with me. It was a DJ unknown, uh, Dr. Rock out of Texas, uh, Sweet Ron Ron, and a cat named Billy T. All these guys were my D- initial DJs for Eve at the Dark. So we all sat down and wrote a rap to Rock Skate Roll Bounce, the song by Von Mason and crew. And we would perform that in the club just to try and get some hype on the club. Okay. And it worked for the most part, but we never never dropped the record. We never released the record. We just okay. uh, made it. It was a club thing. You know, it's just something we did right. in the club because we didn't know uh-huh. how to go about making a record. Nobody made a record before. How are we going to make a record? I don't make no records. So we just <laughs> recorded it and uh, let it sit, you know, just post it up on it. And I still, I got to find it right now because people... People still ask about that song. I had to find that record. I got to go in my archives and find that damn song. But make a long story short, uh-huh. it uh, it kind of gave us an idea, and it put us on the road to becoming uh, a rap group. You know, rap. the guys I had, they were a little bit older guys at that time. I was kind of unknown. Was actually the youngest guy. Mm. Dr. Rock left, and DJ Yeller came in. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Sweet Ron Rod and Billy T left, and then uh, Dre came in. Mm. And uh, when Dre came to the group, it kind of added a different flavor to it. Well, 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 give us a, an idea of what was going on, because you, you, to you, Dre walks in, this person walks in, but there was there was a progression. Uh, hip hop was on the radio all over L.A. You could get on the bus, you hear people talking about if you go over to your friend's house to eat, and the food ain't no good. People are you see how deeply embedded this music is becoming. So when did rappers? So you got a club. And they, you probably see you doing your, your thing with Unknown and everyone. Did rappers start coming to you and saying, I rap? I mean, how did the discovery process work? You know, did Dre actually just walk in? Or you see what I'm saying? I started One of the ways to make the, get the club cracking was to um, sponsor contests. Mm-hmm. I would sponsor contests. I spot. Uh, pop locking contest, break dance contest, and one of my most popular contests was a rap contest. I was sponsor rap contest all the time, and people were you know people didn't have no real fly no real fly, rap. but because I started doing that, people start coming out and start you know start participating in the rap contest, and it's just uh, huh? They gave them a reason to write because they gave them reason to write. Okay, it gave him reason to write, and it just it just kept growing and growing and growing, man. And just that's how I met clientele, DJ clientele, in a rap contest. He came in with so much bravado and so much style, and so so articulate. I had to put him. I, I signed him immediately, dude. You gotta come join me. You gotta come roll with me now. Okay, What's like that? DJ clientele, we love you, my yeah. brother. Okay, yeah, so uh, in doing that. Uh, now, I was already making underground mixes. That was one of my hustles. Mm-hmm. They, they call them mixtapes now. We call them we call them bootlegs back in the day. And uh, so I, I I got familiar with the uh, record making process, how to record, how to play them up, do the labels, um, everything it took to make a record. And uh, then I decided uh, Roger actually dropped the record on me first. He dropped. Uh, Yes, 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 and some other stuff. Uncle Jam's Army, yes, and because we were, we were two. We, we by this time we became two rivals. We were no longer buddies. We were rivals now. You know, you guys, and I could not. Huh? You guys ironically started together. Right. You built your own little mini empires, and so what? Three, four years later, your rival party promotion people. This is before you opened the club up, though. The rivalry started. Oh, no, right? a, a, actually, the rivalry started. Because I opened the club up. <laughs> okay. I actually, when I first when I first got the opportunity to open the club up, I offered Roger a partnership in the club. I said, "Hey man, come on, dude, join me in the club." Well, Roger, you, you have to know Roger to understand Roger. Roger is a smart dude. He's a very smart dude, but he also is one arrogant son of a bitch. Okay. <laughs> And, uh, oh, no, man, I ain't going over there on them sherm heads. <laughs> them sherm heads. Uh, no, man, hell no. I ain't going over there on them sherm heads. <laughs> so, I, so, but what he didn't understand is I knew all the sherm heads. I knew, uh-huh. the, niggas, I knew the guys, I knew the people that sold the sherm, the ones smoked the sherm. I'm from that neighborhood. Uh-huh. Okay? And I just wanted him to come in and help ease the, ease the financial pain and add to the promotional muscle. He turned it down. <laughs> so, shortly... We've been we opened in June, so sometime around I don't know around uh, uh, September October he came in wanting to be a partner. By that time we was cracking. I didn't need no help. Okay, so when I turned him down. He got mad at me. Oh man, you a fat cat. You a fat cat. Oh man, how you gonna do me like that, Roger? I, I don't need you to come in and help me split up no money. We, <laughs> the, the heavy lifting's been done already. Okay. Uh. And he vowed then, I'm going to be the biggest promoter of all y'all. Fuck all y'all. Excuse my French. Forget all y'all. I'm going to be bigger than all y'all. Okay? Well, cool. Do your thing. And we laughed his ass off. Okay? Well, go get your soda and demon. It went up good because it gave L.A. two powerhouse uh, energies uh, that left a hell of a legacy. You're one of them. But go ahead and continue. I I tell people all the time. I assume we went from there. Yeah, I tell people all the time, Roger and I, me and Roger's feud 
was the nitro and the glycerin that blew up the West Coast. There you go. Okay? You had to have that nitro and glycerin to blow up some stuff, okay? He was, he, I was a hater of his. He was a hater of mine. And we both knew that. But understand this. We never, we never fought physically. Right, okay? right. It was professional rivalry, basically. It was a professional rivalry, although sometimes I wanted to kick his ass. Okay? <laughs> I wanted to kick his ass a couple of times, but I chose not to. You know, we just, we, back then, you know, we, we, sometimes we had, we, we, we had all kind of corporate espionage. You know, I'd go to the flyer man and find out how many flyers he got or go to the poster shop and get a poster guy in the back, give him a couple, give him a five dollar tip to find out how many posters he got. So, that information. Okay, I got uh, it. I got to have you pause again and illuminate the flyer okay. war. Only from LA, probably person that Roger can speak on. He's not here. But what were the flyer wars? And you two guys basically instituted that. And how did that work? <laughs> the flyer, the, the flyer, the flyers were our chief, our, our main source of advertising. Okay, uh-huh. flyers well, yeah. were our main source of advertising. It was when it started, and when huh? it before you start, give us the years when that started. The wars actually started. Now, the flyer war started back in the uh, early '70s with the promoters that came before us, LSD, Z Car, LSD, uh, JC2 Productions. So, flyers uh-huh. were the main source of advertising at that time. But as we got into the game. We added posters to the game, uh, the big posters, the telephone pole posters. And, yeah, we hang them on. We, we claim telephone poles. And, you know, sometimes you would get your behind really threatened by even thinking about hanging on one of my posters, on one of my poles. We, you know, that was our territory. We had, everybody had territory. And the idea was to get your pole, posters on the pole as soon as possible, take up that space. And if you can't get no space, you can't get no no uh, no street time. Right. Can't get no street time. People won't know your your events are going on. Right. So um, we would fight. It was it was it was it was crucial information to find out how many posters Roger would get or how many flyers we would get. There were only two people that made everybody stuff. The, uh, right. the flyer man was a guy and named Dale Maynard. He was right. a friend of mine. And yes. Glenn and Kobe Poster made everybody's posters. Roger made, I mean, uh, and uh, Dale made everybody's flyers. So if you, yes. Glenn would never tell you because he understood the significance of the information. But the little guy in the back, he didn't care. Five dollars, <laughs> he'd tell you any damn thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you guys so, are putting up posters, and then there's this crew's tearing down other people's posters. And oh, replacing. Yeah. And this, this, this can't be a time. Big pardon? It gets serious at times. Oh, it got very serious at times, man. A few times. I mean, we never jumped on. We never put hands on Roger and them. We put hands on a few cats before uh, for snatching on our posters. You the, if you the rookie, come on, man. You going to be disrespectful? I'm gonna, we going to spank you, okay? And a few times we put hands on, on, on you know, my crew would go to, go to your event and ask you, what was, did you know that you snatched down our posters? Yeah. So what? Okay. Figure this one out. And next thing you know, it would be it would be a light. It would be a nice little rumble because I had some nice. I had some decent cats in my crew, and uh, the poster didn't get snatched down no more. In fact, by doing that, it stopped everybody from snatching our posters. We would put hands on you. Okay. We never put hands on Roger. Okay. But we came chest to chest a few times. Right. Me and Roger had a pass. These other guys, I don't know you. Okay. Right. And um. You know, I don't know you. Me and Roger had me and, me and Roger had a pass, so you know he right. sometimes each one of us would give the other one a pass. We talked static to each other, but we okay. never had got never got physical. Okay, so that sometimes, showed up. Huh? That showed up. Money was in the game at that time. The posters brought in the income and the revenue. So you mess with the thing that's generating revenue is very serious. So those are the poster wars. Right, you got up going. Right. Um, Uncle Jam's army is blowing up. So, what happens is you decide to go to the next phase. This 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 takes you into where you meet Eazy E and Dre. Rap is obviously taken over by this time. The DJ is no longer 
the prominent thing. So you get more heavily involved in forming your grab groups. What, what, what kind of process did that, did that happen where you ended up with world-class wrestling? Well, you know, I, um, when, while, while at Alpine Village, because my company name was Disco Construction, a good buddy of mine was teasing me one day. He said, who are they, the wrecking crew? And I'm like, hey, that sounds pretty good. I'm going to keep that. So it became Disco Construction and the wrecking crew. And I got to Eve after dark. I didn't have to carry equipment no more. I didn't have to worry about, you know, lug and load the truck up every night. We left everything at Eve after dark. So we didn't need the, uh, the wrecking crew per se. But at some point in time, the wrecking crew became bigger than Disco Construction. So I dropped Disco Construction, stayed with the Wrecking Crew, okay? Because the Wrecking Crew sound more, you know, sound it sound more more aggressive. The Wrecking Crew, and um, while I, I made my first record, the uh, I got a cease and desist letter from a lawyer uh, saying we couldn't use the name Wrecking Crew because there was a group out of uh, Chicago named the Wrecking Crew, and they were making big records. So uh, it was the time for it was right. This is '84 now. Mm-hmm. and the Olympics came to town. They were in L.A., uh, the Olympics were in L.A., and I kept hearing this term, world-class runner, world-class sprinter, world-class uh, gymnast, and I called my lawyer, hey, man, if I had the term world-class, mess the spelling up, would uh, that suffice? He said, yeah, that'll work. So that's, why, that's how you got a wrecking crew, wrecking, uh, re- world-class, wrecking, no G, C-R-U, Okay. And uh, never had a problem after that. But by this time, we were committed to World Class Wrecking Crew. And um, we started making our records, man. And, you know, because I used to sell records over the phone mm. to all the stores, I knew everybody. Everybody knew my voice. They didn't know my face. So because I had to deliver the records, they got to know my face. And, you know, now I got all these relationships with store owners. You know, and it, it, it's, um, I, I, let, me, let, me, let me say this for a second. Mm-hmm. I tell people all the time, especially youngsters, you don't know where you're going to be in 10, 15 years from now. Treat mm-hmm. everybody the way you want to be treated because, you know, here I am right now. I used to be Dre's boss, Dr. Dre's boss, but now right. I'm going to him to get, some, get things done, okay? Right. And, right. you know, right. if, if right. I had treated him bad, but, you know, because, because I helped him, I bought him his first car, I bought him his first turntables. I gave him access to my studio unlimited. Hey, hey man, what you need, Lonzo? That's what we are now. What you need? Okay. Dr. Dre, we're talking about. That's, that's the Dr. Dre, the billionaire Dr. Dre. We hadn't talked in quite some time, and uh, we reconnected. And now we're at the point where, okay, Doc, what you, what you want to do, Lonzo? I'm in a position to help you. Tell me what you want. What, you, what, what, what can I do? That is you know, beautiful. These are the things that I tell people all the time, man. You know, everybody want to be a tough ass, want to be gangbangers. I do a lot of coaching with youngsters, and mm-hmm. I, I tell them, man, you're 22 years old. You don't know where your partner going to be in 5, 10, 15 years from now. This is the entertainment business. One good video, one good record can change a, cash, a whole career path. And they say, you know, a guy that you was beefing with is in a position to make, help you make some money. That's right. Okay. Let the, well, let's let the bullshit go and get your money, huh? Let's get into that. You meet Eze, Dr. Dre, and this is through the the um, Eve After Dark Club. But how did that? Now that was that right there was a perfect example of what not to do. <laughs> All of, everything I just said just now was a perfect example of what not to do. Okay. <laughs> because when Easy and Dre first came to the club, I gave him a hard time. But I knew Dre. I knew Dre's people. We all grew up on the same street. You know, Dre, Dre's dad lived in the same block that I did. I, I watched Dre grow up pretty much. So when uh, when he told me who he was, okay, cool, Doc. I can tell you what. Go home and change clothes. Come on back in. I'll give you a pass. Well, Easy was with him. And Easy was talking static. Oh man, it's Eve at the dark. I ain't got to go get you. No, yes you do. If you want to come, yes you do. If you want to come up here, you got to come. You got to come correct. It don't come at all. Okay. And uh, so Dre went home and changed clothes. Came back next week, clean like he's supposed to. I let him in the club. Easy didn't come in the club. So I, we got into it a little bit. Oh, are you gonna let him in and not let me in? Oh, 
Keep your little bummy ass outside, okay? We you know we don't do the jeans and t-shirt thing up here. We 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 right. wear baggy pants and skinny ties up here, okay? What year is this, Alonzo? It's very important. This is this is like uh, 82, 83. Okay, good. And uh, eventually, Easy conformed to came to the club, but 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 but, but Easy and Dre came to me. Easy had a production company called uh, High Power Production. Dre was his DJ. The day that Dre came to the club and did his mix, Easy wasn't there. Dre became a part of the uh, the infrastructure of Eve After Dark. He didn't come to me directly. He came right. through Unknown DJ. Unknown, Unknown had him doing bootlegs for him, bootleg mixes uh-huh. for him, and then later on he came to join me when I, went, when I started making legitimate records. Okay, just take your point for one second. So Dre... What he's famous for now, those mixes, he was doing that from the beginning, basically. That was his, that was his first introduction to the record business, yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. That was his first introduction to the record business uh, were those mixes. And um, we did, we, we, by us doing that, um, it, it just, you know, we learned the process and of, ma- of manufacturing records and also the process of distributing records, distrib- distributing records on a local basis. Again, I was a, because I was a, I worked for a distribution company. I had a list that consisted of every record store from uh, Washington, Seattle, Washington to Vegas and all of California. And wow. my that was my that was my territory was all of California. So mm-hmm. I would you know call people up and then everybody in L.A. A lot of times if I wanted to make the sale, I'd drop it off to them. Okay, right. so I, I became I had relationships with people. You know, I would call people up and tell them, "Hey, man, I got this hot product." Blah blah blah, and then later on, I start doing the same thing for my product. Hey, man, I got wow. this new thing. You might want to check out. And you know, it it, it just blew up from there, man. I, I tell people all the time, when I look back at what I went through mm. personally, okay, it's like God took His hand. You ever had to see a kid with a car? and he just guiding around the floor of the house. Right. That's how my life has been when it came to this entertainment. I never, I never, ever, ever, ever in my life planned to be this deep in the music industry. I don't play an instrument. Okay? Right. I'm not a producer. Mm-hmm. I'm not a great rapper. I can rap, but you ain't going to never see me in no contest. You know, right. I, you know, I would be, I'm going out and, and like, if it was a, a ranking, I'd probably be like the five hundred thousand best rapper or some stuff like that. You know, it go. But but I was my talent was always being able to recognize other talent. Uh, that okay. was my talent. I I have a gift for recognizing talent. I have mm-hmm. a gift for p- creating situations that can help not only me, other people as well. Okay. And by having a club at a young age, by being a DJ. Um, people were, were attracted to me, as you very well know. People become attracted to you because you, you, you're you a center of attention. People want to be around you, okay? And because at 22 years old, I got a nightclub, guys and girls want to be around. So I had a, I was a bachelor. I had a house. Everybody come to my house after the club or on Saturday, Sunday after the club or Friday before the club. Everybody at my house hanging out and then, you know, it became. You know, and when I moved into, and I got a bigger house, it even became even more. I got a house and a studio, so twenty four seven. I got people at my house. I got a studio cracking. It reminded me of that movie with uh, Ike and Tina Turner. What's love got to do with it? When you saw all the people hanging out, at Ike and Tina, you know, they had a studio in the living room. Everybody singing, sitting around, kicking it. That's the kind of thing that we did back in the day in my house. Wow. Okay. I always had a studio. I had a four track in my first house. The house I live in now, I had a twelve track, a sixteen track, a twenty four track, and because I had those studios and one of the studios you can go to, you know, people would come over here. So I had uh, who who of West Coast hip hop just hanging at my house. Man, and this you know? leads to the development of not only world class wrecking crew which I do want you to, to speak about how, that, how you put those guys together, but also uh, provide the, the way for them to cut their teeth, Dr. Dre, uh, Easy e to set the stage for their NWA, not without Alonzo, uh, uh, 
niggas with attitude. So let's get into how you put to- together world-class wrecking crew. Um, what sparked that, first of all, to put the group together? And how did you choose the members specifically for your first group? Well, I chose the members initially just because they were DJs in the club. That was that was my first, uh, that was kind of an easy situation, okay? Clientele, like I said, he had won a contest. DJ Yellow was a DJ in the club. Um, Dre came in with that with that, that super mix, and um, I just refused to put money up and not be a part of it. I just couldn't do that. Although I was told by several people, well, you can't own the label to be in the group, too. Why not? Is there a law saying I can't be in the group and own the label, too? No, but it's just Barry Gordy. I said, I ain't Barry Gordy. I'm Lonzo. And this, see, understand this. By me doing that, by me doing that, okay, being in the group, owning the label, okay, that was a direct path for Eze. He saw me do it, so he did it. Okay. Ah, there you go. Now that's knowledge right there. You were the first one, first example of somebody hey. from the hood who came up from the from the hood and is doing all of this stuff musically. And you can't play an instrument. He can't play an instrument. You know what I'm saying? And you've got recording equipment. Right. Now, people don't realize that Easy never intended to be a rapper. Never. They see it right in front of their faces and don't realize it. Okay? Okay. Go to Straight Outta Compton. Easy was not supposed to be in the studio. The studio that Easy did his demos in, I just walked out of, okay? I'm sitting wow. on my deck in, in, in my backyard. I've been in the studio for the last, this is morning. I still own the same house that mm-hmm. Easy and Dre did all the demos in for NWA. I still own that property, okay? I wow. still live there. So if you remember seeing the movie, Dre mm-hmm. had to br- drag Easy in the studio, walk him through his, uh, his part line by line, okay, and he, then he made it work, okay? It wasn't he, you know, he never, again, here's another ac- accidental superstar, okay? Easy's okay. a very shy guy. Yeah. Easy was very shy. Dre, back in the day, all those guys were shy, okay? They, you know, if you put them in a room, you know, they would all, they were like church mice. You, they, you put them in a the car, they'd drive for, for 40 miles, not say a word, because they were okay. all introverts. After a while, they got out of it. They grew out of it. Go ahead. So, you know, when, when I've always been the loud mouth, okay? I've always been the spokesperson, the front person. And like mm-hmm. I said, I grew, up, I grew up like you. I grew up in the 60s and 70s. I grew up right. on the Temptations and, and all that right there. Ain't no way in the world I'm going to have an opportunity to be out front and, you know, and do my thing, do what I think is my thing. And not take advantage of it. So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna play businessman Monday through Friday, but Saturday and Friday and Saturday night I'm on stage with the group. There okay. you go. Okay. In fact, okay. it was funny. I I did an interview. I did an interview uh, early this year. A lady for uh, a magazine. Uh, uh, I forgot the name of the magazine. Uh, I can't think of it right now. But anyway, a Soul Central magazine. Oh, and, okay. the, and the interviewer says Lonzo. Well, who's the other Lonzo that ran the club? I said, that was me, too. You was the same Lonzo that ran the club? And he said, yeah. She said, we always we thought there were two Lonzos because you did, you know, so much being done. No, it was one Lonzo doing everything. Okay? It was one Lonzo doing everything. Okay? And because I set, I, I, I set that trend, that's how you got your Easy's. That's how you got your Puffy's. And, and that's how you got your L.A. Dream Team because here in L.A., wasn't nobody checking for us hip hop wise, right. but we had to create our own labels. Mm. Mm. Okay, the artists had to be on their own label, and as you very well know, sometimes it was, that was the best way to go because you, you you had your bad experiences in the past with with, with independent labels, and yes. back then the game was to tie you up as an artist, and if mm-hmm. somebody wanted to get, give you a record deal, then they had to buy this person out of the contract. And mm-hmm. crazy, that contract, those type of deals still exist today. Mm. Guys are getting signed up left and right to bullshit deals. Yeah. They, they're binding. They're binding bullshit deals. And if somebody want to give you some money or give you a contract, 
you have to buy this guy out who hasn't done a damn thing but has you a sheet of paper. Right. Right. Tell us tell us about LA Dream Team. Rudy Pardee, uh, rest in peace. Uh I knew Rudy. You knew him before I did, obviously, um, but but uh Rudy Pardee for a short period before he started the LA uh Dream Team was the DJ for my group, the world famous LA Breakers. Very few I didn't know that. that I didn't know. Right, snake puppy, no. But he was the DJ for my group when I first formed it. He came to me, said, you need a DJ. And then I had a breakdance group, and boom, you know, he did that. And then we started getting bookings uh, for just the group without the DJ. But by then, he had already, next thing I knew, his <laughs> L.A. Dream Team. You know what I'm saying? But tell us about, uh, I'm going to give a shout-out to Rudy because he's not here, and a shout-out to Snake Puppy about, uh, did you, their formation in the beginning, what you know about that? Yeah, um, I was doing Dudos real strong by this time. I never will forget Rudy came to Dudos. And here, now understand what I'm about to say. Okay. We all were homies. Snake and Rudy, Snake, Snake Puppy and Rudy worked at Wendy's on Crenshaw and uh, Century. Okay. Okay. Now, that's where they met at. Rudy was the manager. So Rudy had business experience. I gotta say something quick. This is crazy. That Wendy's was Wendy's was so new to L.A. that that Wendy's on Crenshaw and Century kept a line about twenty cars deep for the first month it was open. No, no lie. Okay, you could not get a burger at that Wendy's. Right, right. Okay, right. Because they were from out. Right. When Wendy's first touched down, that square ground beef burger. Had a line, 15, 20 cars outside the parking lot, okay? okay. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, as I move forward, um, we didn't have the business acclimate to come in and bring paperwork. We just, everything was a handshake deal with everybody at that time. Okay. Okay? Um, uh, Rudy came to me at Dudos. Hey, man, I'm making this song called Rockberry Jam. I want to say the word, say the name, say your name, Wrecking Crew. Okay, cool. Hmm. He asked Unknown. Hey, Unknown was still with me. Hey, Unknown, I'm making this record called Rockberry Jam. I want to put your name in it. So that's why you got, hey, Bubba, Rockberry, hey, Bubba, Wrecking Crew, hey, Bubba, Uncle Jams, Bobby, Jimmy. At that time, those groups were the hot groups of L.A., and we just, you know, we all were, we were competitive, but we weren't, competitive to the point where we held each other back. Hey, man, what you need? Go ahead. Do your thing. Okay? Right. right. And, you know, that's how we all worked back then, you know? Dream Team played Dudos. You know, they played. we, we played together. They had a uh, one song that, uh, one song they had, um, uh, Dream Team was in the house. That that, that record has always been a big record. And uh, mm-hmm. we were, we were we, Wrecking Crew and L.A. Dream Team used to always compete for who was going to be the big dogs in L.A. <laughs> and usually, and I, I never forget, they was on What's Happening. Oh, it pissed me off to no end. Oh, my God. They, they, the L.A. Dream Team showed up on What's Happening. Oh, my God. But, and and I, what, I, what I found out, they chose them. They, they didn't choose us because I had a beard. Wow. Yeah. They told, okay. they, they told, we had the same management team. We had a, we was both managed by Jerry Heller. They, okay. uh, we we answered Jerry. It was uh, uh, Alexander Heller Agency, Maury Alexander, mm-hmm. and Jerry Heller, and we were on Jerry Heller's roster. They were on Maury Alexander's roster, okay. and but both because of the same company, they pitched both of us together, mm. and they chose L.A. Dream Team only because I didn't have I had a beard. <laughs> they wanted. I said, I, I, I need a razor blade. I shave on the set, okay? But these are the kind of backstories that people don't really understand. That we had the, the kind of dumb stuff we did back and forth. You know, it was always a friendly competition with LA Dream Team and uh, and World Class Wrecking Crew. 
Okay. Now, I got to uh, interject my little L.A. Dream Team story. First of all, to the audience out there, the man you're listening to, Grandmaster Lonzo and Disco Daddy's Wide World of Hip Hop, truly first-generation hip-hop pioneer and legend, and the people we're discussing, uh, world-class wrecking crew and uh, L.A. Dream Team, Rudy Party, who founded that uh, group, is deceased. But they are all first-generation certified uh, pioneers here on the West Coast. Now, the last time I saw Rudy, I was hired by Tom Bradley to do the L.A. street scene for two, three years as the uh, hip-hop uh, uh, entertainment director. And so I had Run DMC down there. I had Ice-T. And I had Rudy Party. Now, 85 was the last year of the street scene because when I introduced Rudy Party, on, and this had nothing to do with them, they were performing. It was just the last time I saw Rudy. They were performing, and Snape Up, you verified this. In the middle of their performance, a fight breaks out between a Mexican and a black right below the stage. At first, it's two of them. Then it's four. Then it's eight. Then it's 16. And the whole crowd is battling in the front of the stage. And I jump down off the stage and try to get them to stop. I jump right into the middle. Please, because, you know, I had the mic, and I was sort of safe. And they they just ignoring me, punching each other out. I climb back on stage. Rudy and them leave the stage, and uh, they they riot spread throughout the night. Hey, Disco Daddy. Have any more street scenes from that? But that that that's my my last time I saw Rudy. Now check and this I'm out. Never, check this uh, out. What, 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 you 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 was busy that day, right? Yeah, now, I was. <laughs> what happened was that, that all that what you say is absolutely true. Uh-huh. We were that Rudy then was just about to walk off stage. We just got on stage. Wow. Okay. okay? We at Wrecking Crew had just got on stage. Okay? okay. And the fight was still a small fight. Okay? <laughs> it was I do I'm 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 sitting there laughing because I didn't know nobody else remembered this but me, okay? Because I, I didn't think nobody remember. Because yeah. I was so pissed off because this was the first time. Because we always felt we had a hotter show than we had. A, we always felt we had a hotter show than in the dream. We we always felt we had a hotter show in L.A. Period. Okay, okay? as world class wrecking crew. Wow. And this was our chance to show L.A. who was the baddest boys from the city. Okay, Rudy was doing their thing. And we had just walked on stage. We hadn't even got into our song good. Right. And the fight was still, it was still yeah. small, okay? Yeah. So we tried to go through it. And that's something that spread like wildfire, man. It now, did. It oh. spread like, I'm watching, I'm watching the jump off. And we're trying to ignore it, hoping somebody's going to shut it down. And right in front of me, right in front of me, a girl, uh, was, she was dancing. And her beard ended up in somebody's hair. The guy pushed her, a guy pushed her, and hit, hit her and her guy and this other guy got to fighting, and it Man. got crazy so fast. Real now fast. dig this right here. Now dig this right here. <laughs> we 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 get out. We we run off. The, we get off the stage. Okay. Uh-huh. We go under the stage. Okay. Uh-huh. I I tell my friends, hey man, let's get under the stage. That way. Uh-huh. Shit, jump off, we'll be all right. We right. climb under the stage. Guess who was under the stage already? LAPD. They're under the stage already. <laughs> wow. I said, I, I said hey, what you doing under here with us, man? Oh, man, if they start shooting, they're going to shoot at us first. I said, who going to protect and serve us then? Y'all on your own. Oh, man, talk about some punk shit. Okay. It was a crazy day. Yes, sir. I didn't know you were there, Alonzo. Dude, I was there, dude. I was there. And it was crazy. Uh, the co- I learned two things, huh? That was the last time they had to speak. It was. I learned two things that day, man. I learned two things. One, that the cops have a move they can do to the horses, and the horse will kick the shit out your ass. Okay, I oh, watched the cops do it. Out, out. I think somebody got shot, or they was laying on the ground after they had cleared people away, and I was standing on the stage with Sylvia Cuntler who ran General Services, who's the one who hired me to be the entertainment director for that day. Okay. And for the 
past three years, as a matter of fact, for the Tom Bradley administration. And I ran over to look at it, and he bumped me with the horse, bumped me back, which I realized all of a sudden, well, damn, if the person is dead, maybe they were just trampled. I don't know. Then naturally, I'm, you know, until the investigators get there, they don't want nobody to get near the body. But I was running over since I was on the stage with the mic and the MC to see if they was okay. But, uh, yeah, that horse is powerful, man. He just nudged the horse and hit me with the shoulder and put me back. I, I crawled back. Now, now <laughs> also, I had a reporter. I, was, I watched this reporter. He was taking pictures of the whole situation, right? And a cop mm-hmm. walked past him, on a, rolled past him on a horse like he was playing polo and hit him with the baton, man. Because they got them extra long batons they have when they, when they be on the horses, right? They got them extra long batons. They like four feet long, as opposed to the short ones they have, the nightsticks. They got right. some longer batons they carry when they on a the horse, okay? And they, yeah. the, this one cop was riding through the crowd like he was paying polo on people's head. He was whop, whop, whop. I mean, in the hit between him and the horse, they was doing big damage. I'm watching this cat, a, a, a reporter. Did you? A reporter was right there. Did you see that? Did you see that? And he filed a lawsuit. He, I, I don't know why he never, he never got back to me, but uh, he wanted me to actually uh, testify in court for him that to what I saw. Okay, and it was just, it meant it was just, it was just, it was just fucking crazy. It was just that, it, that was the craziest day of yeah, I've ever seen in LA history, man. Outside of the riots here in LA. Huh? And we're talking to Grandmaster Lonzo now. Lonzo, we got about five minutes. I'd like okay. you to summarize what Grandmaster Lonzo is doing today. I know you got a book out, but you're also still heavily involved in a lot of different things in your community. Uh, but just bring us up to speed on what's happening with you right now, Grandmaster Lonzo. Well, you know, my thing right now is my thing right now, along with you and the other hip hop pioneers is to get this story out correctly before we all pass on and become a bunch of white people that, you know, came from the valley and, you know, we'll be, you know, somebody else will discover what we did, took credit for what we did. That's why I wrote the book, N.W.A., Not Without Alonzo. I got an audio book as well. I'm doing my own documentary. I've been shooting that for the last past two and a half months. I'm doing a bunch of interviews, uh, a few more interviews uh, in a couple of weeks. I just got back with clientele and Mona Lisa, and we plan to rock this uh Uncle Jam's Army Reunion next week at the uh, Savoy. Um, I'm also a prostate cancer survivor, so I also do a lot of things for prostate cancer because that's one of those silent killers that's been taking black men out uh, faster than any police or, or the Klan. And, you know, it's just a matter of if you know what's going on with your body, you can avoid all that. But so many brothers for over the years have been uh, been too masculine, been too masculine, to even take the exam, but not at the exam. Hold on, now I gotta go inside now. We go back inside. Uh, not the exam has been has become a uh, strictly a blood test. I tell all the brothers, only thing saved me was the fact that I found out early. Wow. So yeah, I'm a prostate cancer survivor uh, advocate, and uh, you know I'm trying to do me a few shows, man, to. Uh, Show my grand my grandkids, granddaddy had it going on. You can have it going on too. And I'm also a, a mentor and a coach to a lot of artists and young men in the city. I I think that's probably one of the biggest things that we miss. Huh. And, that, and while so many young men have and men and women have gone astray, is because nobody has ever taken time to really talk to them and tell them what we did, tell them how we did it. Yeah. It's a little different today, but you still got to have the same kind of drive. You got, you know, you still got to get up out your bed and do something. You just can't expect people to give you shit because everybody wants the same thing. Why, why would I give? Why, why would somebody give it to you? I give it to somebody else, okay? And if your ass ain't trying to make nothing happen, why, why would I give it to you in the first place? Right. Okay. My okay. boy said it best. Was it? Go ahead. My, My boy said it best. If talent. Uh, you, you, talent, talent is great, but you got to put hard work with it. But sometimes hard work can can can, can exceed talent. Okay, yeah. if you got to, if you get put hard work in, you can outdo the person with the talent. Because most people with talent, a lot of people with talent, 
think the world owes them something because either they can sing, dance, or they're pretty, and they don't go nowhere because they think, oh, every time somebody approaches them with something, they got an attitude. Oh, you know, I need all this, I need this, I need that. Well, somebody that's hardworking going to get it no matter what because, you know, that's what they do. That's what they do. Now, where can people go to purchase your book or to purchase your music uh, on the Internet? Uh, all my music is on iTunes. I mean, uh, I'm sorry, uh, it's on CD Baby. Uh, you go to my website, uh, LonzoWilliams.com. Uh, my book is available on, on my website as well as Amazon, uh, Not Without Alonzo, uh, the hard copy and the book. If you want to get an autographed copy, go to my website, LonzoWilliams.com, and uh, you can order directly from me. I'll send you an autographed copy. All my social media is Real Lonzo NWA. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that good stuff. I don't do Snapchat or uh, Periscope, but I do the other the other three basic ones. Okay. Well, Grandmaster Lonzo, we want to thank you for your contribution to hip-hop worldwide. We want to thank you for taking the time to do our show, and we want the blessings to continue to flow for you, my brother. All right? Appreciate it. Same to you, Doc. Thank you, Grandmaster Lonzo. You've been listening to him dropping knowledge on Disco Daddy's wide world of hip-hop. Peace. Peace. So wasn't it a great show? Come back next week, every Saturday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Central Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Disco Daddy's wide world of hip-hop show. Man, it's a great one. Epic, epic. See you next week. Bye.